Well, take your Bibles and turn with me to Ezra chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4, as we are walking through Ezra and Nehemiah. And I'd actually like to take a few minutes to work our way to Ezra 4. We've rehearsed this issue, we've lived it over the past two years or so. And so what I'm about to talk about is not news to you, but just a review. But Satan organized attack, attacks on the world that has been on multiple fronts at once, almost simultaneously. On the first front, the backroom discussions of critical race theory all of a sudden became a vicious and deliberate frontline effort to provoke hatred and violence in the entire world. And forefront to this issue, it seems that the whole world fell for it and continued to fall for it. The whole world fell prey to this false religion in which the the gods that are worshipped are the self-defined oppressed peoples. Law and order became the enemy. Law enforcement officers now became what was wrong with society. In the past two years, there have been more acts of violence against peace officers than ever before in American history. The elite began dismantling whole cities by defunding police departments, not responding to wicked, murderous rioters, yet making certain to spend countless dollars on their own comfort and their own security needs to the tune of tens of thousands of dollars per person. Our southern border has essentially been thrown open such that even drug cartels are now doing a booming business And now about a million people released into societies and cities, some well-meaning, of course, but including terrorists, rapists, and murderers. This is well-documented. And, of course, the headliner has been the use of COVID-19 to empower governments to flat-out lie to society in order to impose unprecedented control. And it all hit at the same time. And what all these attacks did to churches around the world was to create an experience none of us will ever forget. But part of that experience was something maybe that was hidden, at least from some in the church, the churches around the world, that behind the closed doors of leadership teams in the church around the world, battles were raging. Battle lines were drawn and drawn hard over whether the church should be more woke, whether the church should be anti-immigration or pro-immigration, anti-border control or pro-border control. And in the midst of all this, haven't even mentioned this, within the walls of the church, the battle to normalize female pastors and to normalize sinful, godless, egalitarian marriage has been raging and it still is. And that camp is gaining ground quickly. And for the church, of course, the primary issue Satan's deception of the century for the church was whether or not to obey government mandates concerning the health issues related to COVID-19. Now, most professing believers have said, maybe even smugly at times, that if the government ever outlaws Christianity, then we'll resist and we'll go underground. That's right, I'll take persecution for the Lord. But the problem is, is that we delineated a small little box as to what that looks like. And we thought we knew what to expect. But the past two years has been nothing like our assumptions. All these issues took us by surprise. It caused tremendous division. It caused once reputable churches and once reputable parachurch organizations to begin taking their cues from the world and from unbelievers telling us how to believe and how to think. And one of the results was a form of syncretism. The syncretism is the mixing of the worship of the one true living God with other forms of worship, worshiping other gods, other forms of supposedly following God. And now in many Christian circles, the world was driving the agenda. The world was coming alongside God as an equal authority. And the church began buying into it wholesale. For example, in mid-2020, the Gospel Coalition put out an article called Four Reasons to Wear a Mask Even if You Hate It. The article was a classic example of taking a view of the world and imposing it upon Scripture, and it was done badly and obviously. The gist of the article was that if Christians don't wear masks, quote, 
Do we want the non-believing world to look at Christians as reckless virus super spreaders? In other words, the church's priority now is to please the world, that that's what we're about. The author also denigrated churches who gathered again as soon as possible as being selfish. That we gather because we're selfish, which, by the way, betrays a man-centered view of worship instead of gathering to the glory of God. We gather because God commanded us to, and God is glorified when we do so. There's nothing selfish about it. The single layer focus of this article, and this is just a sample of hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of, of these types of communications from Christian sources, but the single layer focus of this article was completely devoid of any larger biblical discussion such as whether or not a governing authority has the right to cover the face, which is biblically the symbol of being made in the image of God. Or it it was devoid of any discussion of whether governing authorities have any right in any context, in any situation, to mandate anything to the church of Jesus Christ. It was a hit piece on any Christian who didn't form their worldview through the lens of the world. And in fact... Hang on to your seats here. The author states in the final sentence of the article that you wearing a mask will, quote, save souls, winning more to the gospel. That's a heretical false gospel. You know how many people were saved because they saw you wearing the mask? Zero. Because God has never saved anybody by watching external obedience to bad laws. There's nothing more than a heretical view of the gospel of Christ that by trying to please the world, people will come to faith. That has never been the case, and it never will be the case. So what exactly did Satan do? What was his methodology? I'd like to use the familiar COVID battle, since we're all battle-scarred by that, and we know it pretty well, as an example of Satan's methods. And I'd suggest a six-part attack that Satan used and is using to harm the people of God. Six parts or six tactics. And the attack is progressive in nature. It, it, it goes from tactic number one to tactic number two and so forth. The first part or the first tactic is temptation. Temptation. Like the Gospel Coalition article I just mentioned, true believers and faithful churches were immediately hit by the temptation to become syncretistic. And again, syncretism, the idea of mixing worship of the one true living God with, with outside false gods or false elements of worship. And now, to be fair, and I think everyone acknowledges this, in Satan's deception, in the opening weeks of the COVID crisis, every single authority was saying, this is the next Spanish flu. People are going to be dropping dead in the streets. And so churches responded in compliance with mandates to close down. The history reminds us that when churches closed down for the Spanish flu in 1918, A, it was voluntary, and B, it could be counted in weeks, not months and years. California alone was expected to have 5 million deaths in 2020. Our book that we put out, The Essential Church, chronicles our own journey, which like so many other churches included, coming out of the fog of the shock attack by Satan on the church. It it took weeks and weeks for us to just figure out what was happening. Suddenly, thousands of sermons were being preached that loving your neighbor means wearing a mask and shortly after that, getting the vaccine. That that's what loving your neighbor is. And suddenly, the world was defining church for us. And in fact, a new phrase that was formerly only used in heretical prosperity gospel megachurches was now normal. That phrase was online church. We've talked about this, but it literally means the ungathered gathering. It's a complete theological oxymoron. And so the temptation of taking cues from other sources, other than what Scripture says about the church, crept into the church at various levels, and syncretism became the norm in many circles. The same thing is still happening in churches across the country in terms of woke ideology as well. Satan's first tactic was temptation. He moved on quickly to the second tactic we'll call hesitation. Hesitation. During the early days of COVID, pastors were on the phone and on the suddenly huge platform of Zoom. If I never do another Zoom call as long as I live, it'll be too soon. We were trying to gauge what to do and pastors were trying to gauge each other. And battle lines were being drawn. 
One of the big issues facing churches and church leaders was that of fear, of being afraid, which translated into hesitation. Now, certainly that fear was defined as caution. It was defined as thoughtfulness. It was defined as restraint. But I want you to think about this. Satan successfully convinced overall the church of Jesus Christ that meeting together is a bad and even sinful idea. To my knowledge, never before in church history have the people of God simply stopped doing what they're supposed to be doing for months on a worldwide scale. Satan used fear of the government. Satan used fear of even being unloving. He used what we believe about loving those against us. That love is now defined as not meeting together. Love is now defined as not proclaiming the gospel. And there was hesitation. There's a third tactic, temptation, hesitation. The third tactic he used we'll call defamation. Defamation. And these just get worse and worse. As COVID progressed and more and more churches began choosing to obey God rather than man, the defamation of God's people began in earnest. And it hasn't quit. Just late last year, NBCNews.com put out an article that's just one of countless examples of the defamation of Christians. It's called, COVID mask and vaccination mandates aren't Christian persecution. Well, the first problem is, is that the author makes no claim to be a believer, and yet he tries to speak with tremendous authority about Christianity. And he speaks with tremendous anger. The Christians who push back against these mandates, now he defines them as dangerous as the fringe. The author states that these Christians are dangerous because they are, quote, closely connected to their allegiance to former President Donald Trump and the GOP, that that's why we're dangerous. The author never demonstrates or proves that at all, but he simply denigrates Christians who are suspicious of those mandates. In fact, he even puts us down by saying that the Pope... Muslim leaders and Mormons all support mask and vaccine mandates as if regenerate Christians all ought to go, oh, well, if the Pope who doesn't believe the gospel and if Muslims who worship a God that doesn't exist, then if the Mormons who are a pseudo-Christian cult believe it, maybe we should rethink this. Actually, that was confirmation that we were on the right side of things. When everybody who hates the gospel believes one thing, probably a good idea to believe the opposite. The defamation from outside the church, unfortunately, was only matched by the defamation from inside the church. Temptation, hesitation, defamation. There's a fourth tactic that Satan used, intimidation. Intimidation. It didn't take long for the battle lines drawn only with words to cross over into more heavy-duty intimidation efforts. Large churches here in California were being fined tens of thousands of dollars, in some cases hundreds of thousands of dollars, for reopening, for staying open. Lawsuits against churches, lawsuits against individual pastors were filed. Threats of arrest of individual pastors were put forward by local governments. Around the country, churches attempting to gather, even with restricted guidelines, were intimidated both by governing officials and by unbelievers who bought into the lie of the government as the sole authority on earth. And of course, all during covid One of the great hypocrisies of governing officials was their total complicity with allowing violent, law-breaking protests and riots of thousands of people while viciously attacking and shutting down churches, churches even that were meeting outdoors. And I think probably the most iconic image of this era, the image of the intimidation of the church, are the countless thousands of photos of churches that seat hundreds or thousands with just a few people out there all masked up Photos of the emptying of our churches. Satan used temptation, hesitation, defamation, intimidation, and it gets even worse. His fifth tactic he used, demonization. Demonization. Demonization takes defamation to a whole different level. Defamation says these are bad people. Demonization of the church and of true believers in Christ took adamant disagreement to the level of characterizing the church as a threat. As a danger. And news services absolutely blew up with attempts to link attending church as the classic super spreader event. Of course, we made the case that the goal of the church is not to stay healthy. The goal of the church is to worship God. 
We've had that discussion in many different messages, including 2 Chronicles 29, when Jehoshaphat determined that God's people would gather to worship even in the midst of a plague. But the church was singled out primarily as the most dangerous group in America. And in fact, this was an example of several classic statistical fallacies. Now, I want to walk through these with you. It was an example of what's called data dredging. Data dredging is where you find enough examples of an event to make a claim that it's overall true, that it's generally true. In other words, it says people have gotten COVID at church services. This equals church services all cause COVID. That's data dredging. Or there's the fallacy of false causality. False causality says that because people who recently attended a church service have COVID, the church service must be the cause. That's unprovable. You have no idea that that's the cause. There's no way to prove that. And you have the statistical fallacy of biased samples. This is the most obvious one. No one was comparing the number of people who may or may not have gotten COVID at a church gathering to the total number of people actually gathered nationwide and determining if it was statistically significant. No one was comparing church services statistically to casinos, grocery stores, drug stores, political rallies, or protests, or riots. But the church was demonized. We are a threat. We're dangerous. We're the problem. And of course, now the church is dangerous to what the world calls women's health, the murder of unborn children. We're dangerous to gender identity, the sin of transgenderism. We're dangerous to racial equity, the sin of causing division to supposedly cry out against division. So Satan has used temptation, hesitation, defamation, intimidation, demonization, and the ultimate tactic to harm God's people, he uses confrontation. Flat-out confrontation. The threats against churches and church leaders progressed to confrontation, and it doesn't take much to scare and intimidate the rest. That's the whole point of confrontation. You confront and you harm a few so that the rest comply. Pastors in Florida, California, and Louisiana were arrested for holding church services. Protesters gathered outside churches all over the nation with signs demanding the government close the churches with threatening messages. And of course, most famously in Canada, numerous pastors were arrested and imprisoned and put on trial. Churches were invaded by police, private church property seized by the government. Now, I wanted to remind us of these tactics of Satan not to depress you and take you back to to some difficult times. But I wanted to remind you of these tactics to harm the people of God of temptation, hesitation, defamation, intimidation, demonization, and confrontation so that you're aware that these are not new tactics. These are not new. Now we can travel back over 2,500 years to Jerusalem where 50,000 people, mostly Jews, with some Gentiles, have traveled back from Persian-controlled Babylonia to reestablish the temple of God in Jerusalem. We saw in chapter 3 that the people accomplished the laying of the foundation of the temple and they worshipped God. And yet, even in chapter 3, their worship and their work was tinged by the realities of fear and sorrow, anxiety and grief. The heady days of starting to rebuild the temple are now met with even worse opposition. Opposition to, that is so fierce that it shuts down and stops in its tracks the work of rebuilding the temple of God. But remember... All of Ezra and Nehemiah shows us proofs and evidence of God's faithfulness. So far, the proofs that we've seen of God's faithfulness are that God keeps His word, God produces obedience, God deserves unconditional trust. And tonight, I'd like to show proof of God's faithfulness by the fact that God bestows faith-building tests. God bestows faith-building tests. And so while we'll see that the Jews are under terrible opposition Part of the good hand of God, which we see as a theme in Ezra and Nehemiah, part of the good hand of God is that God provides opportunities to build, to strengthen, and to test the faith of His people. And just like in Job, just like in the Gospels, God uses Satan to accomplish His bigger redemptive purposes. That although opposition may come from Satan, God is the efficient cause of all without sin, all without blemish to his character. Lamentations 3, 37 and 38, God causes all things. 
So we've seen that the tactics that Satan used to harm God's people during the COVID crisis. What tactics did he use against the Jews in Ezra 4? You've probably guessed. The same ones. The same ones. The first tactic. Temptation. Temptation. Now, at the end of chapter 3, it just looks kind of celebratory, but then it becomes very, very significant. Look at the very last verse of chapter 3, the last phrase. Chapter 3, verse 13, For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Why is that significant? Because the wrong people heard it. The wrong people heard it, and immediately a temptation to compromise is brought against the Jews. And it sure seems friendly enough at the outset. Chapter 4, verse 1, follow along with me, if you would. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Now, know this It's very kind of the writer to keep the reader from any spiritual confusion whatsoever. These neighboring peoples are immediately labeled as the adversaries. The adversaries of Judah and Benjamin. These opponents are the people of Samaria, the northern region of of Palestine. These were peoples that were brought from other areas of the world after the ten northern tribes of Israel had been deported in the attack of 722 B.C. by Assyria. And so the Assyrians had brought replacement citizens to Samaria They had deported them from other parts of the world and brought them here. And these now coming to the Jews in Jerusalem claim to worship the God of Israel. And it sounds really good. This is fabulous. We have other Yahweh worshipers and they'll help us with the temple. Well, they leave out a small bit of history. But God doesn't. The part of history they leave out is recorded in 2 Kings 17. You don't have to turn there. I'll just tell you the story that they were all pagans who came to live in this northern territory in Israel and they had no regard for Yahweh whatsoever. 2 Kings 17.25 records how God responded to this. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. This isn't good. So the king of Assyria, when he was told about this, he sent back one Israelite priest to teach these pagans how to worship God, at least externally. How to go through these motions. But these people also kept all their own gods. They made shrines. They made sacred holy places for these gods. They simply added Yahweh to their list, their pantheon of gods. Second Kings 17.33 summarizes the situation going back two centuries before our text here. It says, so they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. So these people here, they're they're coming down and they're saying, hey, we want to get in on this. We want to help you build the temple. How tempting would this be? Easily tripling, maybe quadrupling or even more. The available manpower, the available protection And certainly this would lend an air of legitimacy to what they're doing. Remember that in chapter 3, the fear of all the neighbors was upon Israel, upon the Jews. All their neighbors would now be happy with them. This could solve multiple problems at once. This could smooth the way. We could get this thing done, make everybody happy. What a temptation. But the true believers in God cannot make a partnership with those who claim to be believers and yet practice syncretism. The addition of worship of other gods alongside Yahweh. This would have been a spiritual disaster for the Jews. Just like it is spiritual disaster for the church when it attempts to please people who claim to worship God yet try to please the other gods of worldly philosophies as well. Cannot please Christ and please the world at the same time. You cannot mix the two. You cannot say, well, I think I can find a biblical basis for masks and vaccines. No, that's syncretism. And so the leadership praised the Lord for godly leadership. They recognized what was going on. They saw it. Chapter 4, verse 3. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. 
So Satan's scheme started soft. It started with temptation. It's kind of fuzzy with the appearance of cooperation and even help. But when Satan's temptation is rebuffed by God's people, then the true, wicked, adversarial nature of God's enemies is revealed. Satan started subtly with temptation. He started sort of playing nice, if we could put it that way. But the second tactic to harm God's people gets immediately elevated. Hesitation. Hesitation. This hesitation is brought about by means of undermining, by means of planting doubts, planting fears. Chapter 4, verse 4, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. First, they planted fears and doubts. And this is always done the same way. It's, It's one question. What if? What if the king of Persia thinks you're rebelling? What if your other neighbors attack? What if God doesn't give you what it takes to finish this task? In the church of Jesus Christ, God save us from the what-ifers. We don't need them. The ones who plant fear and doubt instead of faith and certainty. That's the first thing they did. The second thing that caused hesitation was that the people hired what amounts to lawyers to come against them whenever the Jews would appeal to the Persian authorities that Cyrus had in fact commissioned them to fulfill building the temple. And this is key because this opposition comes right near the end of Cyrus's reign. And so, so Cyrus is out. It continued through nine years of the reign of his son Cambyses into the beginning days of a new king named Darius. And what happened from this opposition? The hesitation worked. Building on the temple stopped completely for about 15 or 16 years. From about 536 B.C. to 520. The work to which God called His people stopped because of outside influences, because of fear, because of doubt. Satan's tactics to harm God's people, temptation, hesitation. The third tactic he uses, defamation. Defamation. Now, eventually, as we'll see in chapter 5, work on the temple did resume and they did finish. But the author now, from here on, takes us slightly forward in time. Uh, Kind of a flash forward, you might call it, to show the opposition that was happening even after the Jews regained their courage and began building again. We step forward in time now from about 536 or so to 486 B.C. to the reign of Ahasuerus, Son of Darius, he's also known as Xerxes. He's the same king of Persia who would eventually marry Esther the Jew. And these same opponents now sent a letter of accusation against the Jews. New king, new opportunity to slander. Chapter 4, verse 6. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. The most likely point of the letter was to try to cause fear and doubt once again. It was not kept a secret that this letter was sent because it's here in the text. This letter would obviously be one-sided and filled with lies and slander. Lies and slander are second nature to Satan. They're his weapon of choice to harm God's people just using words. And remember, in the ancient world, you sent a letter to a king. It took weeks or months for it to get processed and he could make a decision before you ever got a chance to even know about it. So this letter was a big deal. During the COVID crisis, in many churches, a phenomenon was observed that leaders in conflict over the church's response to COVID very often resorted to falling for Satan's trap of slandering one another rather than using biblical reasoning and biblical argumentation to try to establish a God-honoring position. I lost track of how many times I personally read or heard about churches in which leaders left in anger and vitriol because other leaders didn't want to bend the knee to Caesar. Or worse, they stayed and made life a living nightmare for others. I think it's easily fair to say that in 2020 and into 2021, there were likely more internal church conflicts worldwide than since the Great Reformation. And that's not even counting the slander brought about by those outside the church. 
Satan's tactics to harm God's people, temptation, hesitation, defamation. His fourth tactic, intimidation. And this is escalating. This is getting bigger. We continue forward in time, 22 more years to about 464 B.C., 22 years after the first letter. Every time a new king would come to power in the Persian Empire, the enemies of God's people would try to bring that power to bear against the Jews. And they were very persistent. Chapter 4, verse 7 In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabil and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. And in fact, the next section of Ezra is is actually originally in Aramaic just to demonstrate this. Now, we're familiar with Artaxerxes, son of Ahasuerus or Xerxes, because he's the king who would decree that both Ezra and Nehemiah return to Jerusalem. But notice that this letter seems beefier. It's more compelling than the letter of verse 6. This time, three individuals are named as being kind of the face, so to speak, of the people, including the rest of their associates. Now, nothing is said about Bishlam, Mithridath, and Tabil here in the text, but the fact that they're named could at least imply that the original readers were familiar with their reputations. Remember back in verse 5, we saw that lawyers were hired to legally frustrate the efforts of the Jews to rebuild. It could be that there is an intimidation factor here. Uh Uh-oh, the law firm of Bishlam, Mithridath, and Tabil are involved now. That's mostly speculation, but there is a third letter, as we'll see in a moment. And this third letter successfully establishes a pattern of escalating intimidation, of threats. So it's reasonable to assume that the second letter in verse 7 was stronger and more intimidating than the first in verse 6. What's the purpose of intimidation? It's the same every time. It is always to get God's people to stop being faithful and start being unfaithful. That's what intimidation is for. To compromise first in little ways, which poisons the water of of truth and poisons the mission of the church. But Scripture tells us how to fight intimidation by the world. We read this text this morning concerning being faithful to the gospel ministry. Paul reminded Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 to continue in the mission of preaching the truth to the church. And he comforts Timothy in verse 7. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. What is the power? It's that you'll have all the strength that you need to stand. What is the love? That your motivation is obedience to God in love and obedience to God in love for His people. And self-control, what does that mean? It simply means that by God's Spirit, you endure by simply deciding to keep going to keep meeting, to keep being faithful, to keep on being the church. That's how you handle intimidation. There's a fifth tactic, demonization. Demonization, again, takes defamation to a whole new level, claiming that God's people are a threat, that they're evil, that they're dangerous. The writer of Ezra Nehemiah makes this third letter also to Artaxerxes. He makes the third letter the primary focus of the chapter. This is the big thrust of the chapter. Verse 8. Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rehum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Asnapar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria in the rest and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a strong adversarial alliance with a lot of important men writing to King Artaxerxes. Rehum was the military commander over the whole Persian province that they called beyond, the province beyond the river. This included Judah and Jerusalem. His personal assistant and secretary was Shimshai, who actually wrote the letter itself. Osnapur was the king of Assyria who completed all the deportations to inhabit the northern territory of Samaria, the the former northern kingdom of Israel. And so they're throwing their weight around as being men from the great cities of Erech, the great city of Babylon, the great city of Susa. Verse 11, this is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants 
the men of the province beyond the river send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this, learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, then you will have no possession in the province beyond the river. They are claiming to be the actual loyal ones to the king. You notice how they're just completely just, just looking up to Artaxerxes, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river. But they say, we eat the salt of the palace. What does that mean? It's a sign of being in covenant relationship with Persia. We're in covenant relationship with you. We're loyal to you. And what's their claim? They're claiming that if the city of Jerusalem itself is completed, the Jews are going to rebel. Now, historical note, there was no indication of this whatsoever. And in fact, it would be Artaxerxes who would eventually commission Nehemiah to make sure the walls get finished. Artaxerxes trusted and was even fond of Nehemiah, as we'll see when we get to Nehemiah. But did you hear the broad characterization of Jerusalem in verse 15? Pretty much the same characterization by wicked people today. That the city is rebellious. Was Jerusalem rebellious? Yes. Every time horrible nations tried to crush them, they rebelled. And boy, could these guys paint a gloomy picture. They said that three disastrous events would happen if Jerusalem was ever completed. The first event is that all the taxes and tribute would dry up. Part of the point of having an empire is to tax the various provinces. The second disastrous event, the king would be dishonored when little Jerusalem stands up to the whole of the Persian Empire. And the third event is that Persia would lose the entire province eventually. This sounds real, doesn't it? That the descendants of less than 50,000 Jews who returned a few decades earlier were going to successfully take on the Persian army, numbering 2.5 million soldiers. In addition to the elite special forces known as the Immortals, 10,000 special forces strong. The greatest fighting men in the empire. Now this letter comes sometime before Nehemiah 1 and 2 and at this juncture after receiving this letter of doom that all his taxes would stop, that Artaxerxes would personally be humiliated and that he would lose the whole province at this moment in time, Artaxerxes bought it. He believed them. Verse 17, the king sent an answer. To Rehem, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree and search has been made and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem who ruled over the whole province beyond the river to whom tribute, custom and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city not be rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Now, there is a little bit of hope at the end of verse 21 that work is to cease, quote, until a decree is made by me, which eventually it would be, as recorded in Nehemiah 2. Artaxerxes had read accounts of mighty kings of Jerusalem who had ruled all the peoples around them. They had received tribute. They had received taxes. They ruled the, that entire province. We know those mighty kings. Their names are David and Solomon. But the better part of caution for Artaxerxes was to assume that this kingdom might be rising again. And so he decrees that the work should stop, at least for now. The demonization of God's people as dangerous had succeeded for the moment. But the local opponents, Rehum and Shimshai and their associates, they took this to a completely different level. 
Artaxerxes had acted fairly peaceably. The, the Jews were simply to be told to stop, but the local adversaries took it a step further. Which takes us to our final and ultimate tactic to harm God's people, confrontation. Artaxerxes issued a decree that the city's renovation was to stop. It was just to pause. Because he bought into the demonizing lie that God's people were dangerous. But like all totalitarian, power-hungry, lower-level officials who are given power, the local officials took it way farther. Verse 23. Then, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe, and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Work on the city stopped. Work on the wall stopped. This was a military action against the Jews. And listen, the military force didn't just stop the work. They didn't pause it. They undid it. They did damage and destruction as well. They destroyed the work that had been done. Let me prove this to you. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who survived the exile, concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, I think the assumption most people make is that that's talking about the destruction the Babylonians rendered to Jerusalem. But that was over a century earlier. This wasn't the leftover destruction from a century earlier. Fresh, new construction had been happening Jerusalem was being rebuilt. It was almost done. But this destruction had to be at the hands of the local opposition empowered by Artaxerxes because Nehemiah's grief is profound. Nehemiah 1.4 As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He's not weeping and mourning for days because of something that happened over a century earlier. It just happened. Now, you remember I noted that these three letters took us on a journey forward in time to demonstrate the opposition that would go on for many, many years. And now the final verse of chapter 4 takes us back to the present day when the only work that had been done was the foundation of the temple and the beginnings of constructing the new temple. Verse 24 takes us back to the time indicated in chapter 3, verse 8 which says, now in the second year after they're coming to the house of God in Jerusalem in the second month. So we're back to present day, just the second year after the return. Verse 24, Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now we're back to the first opposition, about 536 B.C. or so. Satan has used the same strong-arm tactics for millennia. Why? Because at least at the outset, they work. For you, as the precious saints of Christ, trying to live a holy life in a world that hates you more and more with every passing month, we used to say with every passing year, with every passing month now, what does this mean for you? What does Ezra 4 mean for your quest for Christ-likeness? The title of this message is that God bestows faith-building tests. What does that mean? It means that while Satan may be the means, God is the ultimate sovereign cause. And by placing you in the line of fire, what is God doing? God is strengthening your faith. God is renewing your determination to covenant faithfulness to Him. He's strengthening you. It's abundantly clear that trying to live out your faith in Christ while simultaneously giving any ear to, giving any credence to, and responding to any fear of opposition is absolutely hobbling to genuine faith. It can't be done. Genuine faith in Christ and obedience to Christ is always preeminent over opposition. We don't revolt, we don't rebel, but we politely refrain from obeying earthly authorities that contradict God's Word. It's also clear that there's a reason that the New Testament is fairly dripping with exhortations to be spiritually alert, to be watchful, to be spiritually awake. 
is through the first tactic, temptation, that Satan lulls many into spiritual sleep. But the trials that God bestows, they teach you to stay awake. They teach you to be spiritually vigilant. Let me ask you a question. If the government tries to shut down churches anytime soon, what do you think is going to happen this time? Fool me once, shame on you, right? What has COVID done for the church of Jesus Christ and for her Christ-likeness? It has exposed syncretism in our ranks. It's caused a renewed determination that the church is to be the church no matter what Caesar says. And unlike the precisely zero people that came to faith in Christ because they saw a Christian getting vaccinated, countless thousands and thousands have come to Christ because they saw the church gather to worship the one true living God whose authority supersedes that of all other authorities. And unbelievers ran to the truth of the word when the world had no answers for them. What about the cross of Christ? Is there a road to the cross from this unique chapter of Ezra 4? Jesus himself condemned syncretism, the attempted mixture of worshiping God and worshiping false gods. He warned the very most religious people of his day that they would stand before him and they would list their religious accomplishments, but he would tell them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. That was part of the Old Covenant, God's covenant with Israel. But the principle holds true and it's repeated in the New Covenant. Jude, verse 25, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. God does not share glory. He won't. And He will not accept syncretism. Every human being has two choices. You may worship God alone through Christ to your everlasting bliss. Or you may worship anything else, including false versions of our faith, to your everlasting destruction. But you cannot do both. You cannot play both sides of the fence. How does this lead us to the cross? What does Galatians 2.20 say of the true believer? I have been crucified with Christ. In Christ alone. Now, from our vantage point, Ezra 4 ends on a disappointing and deflating note. It just kind of ends like a big... It's just kind of how it feels at the end, right? But take comfort. All of Ezra and Nehemiah ends on a disappointing and deflating note. (laughs) Why? Because it's meant to keep you reading, to keep going. You get to the end of Ezra and Nehemiah and you go, that's it? That's the great return from exile? It is to keep you looking to a real kingdom of Israel that will be the capital nation of the kingdom of God on earth. You know what the most exciting verse in Ezra 4 is? And ironically, it's a short historical note made by an unbelieving king. The most exciting verse in Ezra 4 is verse 20. Look at verse 20 with me. And mighty kings have ruled over Jerusalem who ruled over the whole province beyond the river to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. That's the whole point of Ezra and Nehemiah. Right now, there is no mighty king in Israel. There isn't one. Israel is awaiting the mighty king of all the kings. Israel is no threat. They can barely survive. They need a mighty king, but they don't have one. Not yet. But why is Ezra 4 verse 20 the most exciting verse in Ezra 4? Because unknowingly, Artaxerxes has lifted the lid on the Davidic covenant. He has lifted the lid on the covenant God made with the mighty king David. The covenant in which God promised that someday a descendant of David would be the mighty king of Israel and would reign forever and ever. So as Ezra 4 ends on this deflating note, what will God do in this situation where the Jews have been gripped by fear? They're outgunned, they're outmanned, they're outkinged. They have no army. They have no great population and they have no mighty king. What is God going to do? What will God do to get them back on track to rebuild the temple? Look with me at chapter 5, verse 1. This is what God does. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Jerusalem, in Judah and Jerusalem, in the name of the God of Israel, 
who was over them. And look at this. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. What could Haggai and Zechariah say to less than 50,000 Jews and servants who came with them from Babylonia that would so encourage them that they would finish the temple? What's the stunning message that would motivate these few thousand Jews to defy all the opposition, to rebuild the temple of God despite being surrounded by enemies? What was it that Zechariah and Haggai said to the people that gave them the spiritual strength to persevere, to endure, and to press on? I'm going to share that with you next week. We're going to take a one-week digression next week right here in chapter 5, verse 1. And we're going to do a 35,000-foot flyover of all of Haggai and Zechariah. 16 chapters of glory. What were the details of God's message that motivated the Jews to stand firm against spiritual opposition? It's nothing short of stunning, and it is preeminently and heavily centered on a mighty king by the name of Jesus. That's what encourages them. And we'll take some time next time to just go through those. We'll just stop and pause at Ezra 5 verse 1 to see the encouragement given to these people to get them courageous and to make them obedient. And I think it'll be encouraging to you. I hope tonight has been encouraging to you as well. Let's pray together. Our Father, we trust your sovereignty and we know that you are the one that kindly bestows faith-building tests. You've told us in 1 Peter 1 that we're filled with joy because of trials, because they prove our faith to be real, because we run to the living God in the midst of our pain. We're told in James chapter 1 to consider it all joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because the testing of our faith produces endurance. And so, Lord, I pray for a man or a woman in our midst who is suffering in some way, in front of whom you have placed trial after trial after trial until it just feels like there's no hope. I pray, Lord, that they would see that this is your kindness, this is your grace to build their faith, and that you never leave us without resources, just like the Jews in Jerusalem to whom you gave the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. You have given to us the truths of the Word of God to help us to persevere and to keep going. We trust you that all of your good purposes, that the good hand of God, which includes difficulties and darkness and trials, that the good hand of God will lead us safely home to a spectacular outcome to your overall plan for redemptive history. Thank you for making us a part of that history through the cross of Christ. Thank you for our salvation. And we pray, Lord, that we would have the faith of these who got up And despite the opposition around them, obeyed the Lord. Let us do the same in the church of Jesus Christ in this age of darkness. We pray that we would be light during this time. And we pray all these things for Christ's sake, for his honor, for his glory. Amen.